Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Kinsey here with todiefordaily.com. And thank you so much for checking out the To Die For Daily podcast. Here's Andrew Morton discussing the updated version of Meghan Markle unmasking the monarchy. I love this book. And you know, what was really interesting to me was how kind you're very kind to her. I think that people might be surprised because if you open up a newspaper or you watch television, there's so much negativity thrust at her. Um, It feels like it's the only agenda. While I was skimming through this book, you're very upfront and honest about contradictions that are in their life. But in no way, shape or form is this a hit piece? Is this a cruel you know, piece of literature? I mean, if I were Meghan Markle, I would I would love this book. And I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed it. I want to know, because there are so many parallels between Meghan and Diana, how much of it do you feel is sincere and how much of it do you think perhaps is intentional? The conversation with Oprah, when they made a lot of those comparisons, is it all sincere or does she try to be like Princess Diana? Well, Kinsey, thank you very much for those very kind comments. I mean, um, I try to be fair to Meghan and to Harry and, and also to the men in grey and to the, to the backroom staff. So that's what you're supposed to do as a biography. You're supposed to be trying to be even-handed. And I, I had to accept that what they said was their true story, not the true story. And there were many contradictions in that. Um, Megan was, when she was a teenager, was captivated by Diana. Uh, she had my book, Diana, Her True Story, on her shelves. They watched the funeral. They, they, she and her friends were um, saddened and very moved by it. And I think they did, they did some charity collections afterwards and took toys and things to a charity store. Um, and one of her friends said that, oh, she always wanted to be Diana 2.0. Um, uh, whereas I've always argued that she wanted to be Megan 1.0. That is to say, she wanted to be her, herself, not a reflection of somebody else. And there are significant differences uh, between Diana and Megan, especially growing up. One of the things I noticed was that Diana was achingly shy in when she was a kid. And, and, uh, and she always said to me, you know, it, uh, I was the twit that sat that stood at the back of the the performance on stage at school, whereas Megan was the one who took the microphone and would actually hand out prizes to the t- for the best teacher. She was the one who led a, a a march against the first Gulf War back in what 1990 when she was just she wasn't even a teenager. So she was a very different kind of girl, very far more confident. And you saw, and, and I think that if Diana had been around today, she would have been quite, you know, admiring, but also a little bit jealous of her skill at the microphone, because Diana always wanted to give speeches and to be, and to be celebrated for what she had to say rather than how she looked. And uh, uh, it's interesting that she focused on those people on the way out, the sick, the dying, the homeless really focused on individuals and Megan by contrast she focuses on communities the grand uh, the grandful uh, women uh, who who cook and 
bring a sense of community. The women who have lost jobs and, and uh, trying to get clothes and confidence for the charity Smart Works that she works for, that she's, that she's patron of. Um, Megan is someone who said, you know, I don't want to be loved, I want to be heard. So she's, she's a different kind of campaigner than Diana. Um, but at the same time, what struck me as I was uh, writing the book and as I was researching the book was the, this astonishing similarity in the media narrative that within a matter of months, Diana was being called a fiend and a monster, uh, the mouse that roared responsible for the firings of private secretaries, bodyguards and others. And she once, she, she once came up to a group of us uh, standing outside a, um, a royal engagement. She said, look, I don't sack people. That's not what I do. And I, and I lay, later realised at the time that she was literally just trying to you know, keep her head above water because she had bulimia and nervosa. She had all kinds of depressions and jealousies and so on. And I found it astonishingly, re remarkably similar to the narrative that uh, Megan went through, that she was she went from Duchess Dazzling to Duchess dif Difficult. Um, the woman who, the, the, and I found this a quite extraordinary story, that the Queen has said, you know, uh, about that she, that, um, she gets the ta tiara, tiara that I've chosen for her. Yeah. And so, you know, that narrative began where she she changed from this girl who walked down the aisle at St George's Chapel at Windsor on that wonderful day in May, and it was it was a glorious moment. And it, it, how quickly things change from being um, that kind of person and that kind of moment to being someone who is being. Uh, accused of snubbing the queen, as it were. I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad you write about that in the book, because we remember Princess Diana as the second coming of Mother Teresa. We don't even think about all the negative press anymore. We just remember her as a saint. Yes, it's a very good point you're making there. And uh, she was in the last weeks of her life and all of the newspapers would like to forget this. She was viciously attacked for um, for her for dating Dodie and for her behavior uh, and it was yeah, of course everything everything was reined in rapid very rapidly uh, after the car crash in Paris you wrote about something saying there was a danger in Megan becoming bigger than Diana I think it was a courtier or somebody said there was concern that Megan would become bigger than Diana and it would shrink the Cambridges and it would shrink Charles and Camilla and their objectives you know and what they were trying to do do you think that was really an option that Meghan Markle could become bigger than Princess Diana well this is the this is what was being said at the time. And remember, uh, we didn't have social media when Diana was around, and now we do. So you can be incredibly well-known globally very quickly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that what happens is that in the royal family, it's all about position, not popularity. Now let's just let me take you back to the 1960s when Princess Margaret married Lord Snowden, a, a photographer. 
And they were the most popular people on the planet, uh, alongside Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And, you know, the paparazzi, and they didn't even have a name for the paparazzi in those days, would chase them all around Europe to these exclusive islands. And people couldn't get enough of this couple, this golden couple. And they outshone the Queen and Prince Philip. But that that kind of that balloon eventually sinks and it's, you're back to the position. And Margaret always you know, acknowledged the fact that she was the, 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 the number two and it was always the queen who was the number one. And there is a similarity between Meghan and Harry and um, Catherine and William in the sense that um, Meghan and Harry were enormously popular uh, when they did that first tour of Australia. But as the Queen, if she sat them down, would remind them, when she did her first tour of Australia in 1954, it, the crowds were astonishingly big. And, uh, and I remember when I did the, the first tour of Diana and Charles in 1983, well over a million people turned uh, turn out to see them. But the second time and the third time, not quite so many. And so there was obviously when, when Meghan and Harry came back from Australia on a high and thought that, you know, they were the golden couple. Yes, they were. But that only lasts for so long. I mean, you know, in 10 years time, when Meghan's 50, would as many people turn out to see them? No, they'd be, they'd be wanting to see George and Charlotte and, and Louis. You know, the, that, that's the uh, and that's the immutable royal round, as it were. I liked this part where you talk about Megan lived in fear of being exploited by her father and could no longer trust him. Now, this is in regards to the wedding and the letter and all this stuff. Do you think that the Cambridges and Prince Charles feel the same about Harry and Meghan at this point, that they live in fear of being exploited by them and can no longer trust them? It just feels like after the Oprah interview, there's quite a ways to go to gain trust back. It just felt like so much was exposed there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the subtitle of the book is The Unmasking of the Monarchy. I mean, uh, uh, Harry accusing his father of being trapped, of accusing William of being trapped. And that doesn't say much about the central uh, 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 institution in British life, that if the head, the apex of that is stultifying and and and, uh, uh, and doesn't give uh, you the chance to be yourself. Um, I thought I think that it works both sides. I mean, Harry didn't want to write down what he wanted in terms of uh, rearranging his and Meghan's life inside the royal family, because he everything had been leaked in the past. And sure enough, when he uh, did write it down and put and addressed it as a memo uh, to his father. Sure enough, it was leaked in the in a, in a tabloid newspaper. So there was a lack of trust on both sides, and certainly, I mean, Harry says some pretty uh, and Meghan have said some pretty devastating things. And there's a, a, a certainly about um, the the racial um, makeup of of, uh, of Archie, and I do find it. Uh, it, it will take some time, I think, for them to smooth over the cracks because uh, it, it's not just a crack, it's a chasm. And certainly uh, Meghan and Harry have, 
he's taken, you know, a, a claw hammer to the monarchy. Yeah. And really giving him a bashing. Do you think that Harry and Meghan feel like they are continuing something that Diana started? Do they feel like this is revenge for the way his mother was treated and her untimely death? Or is this just them reacting to their circumstances? I think I think it's reacting to their circumstances, but at the same time, as I make the point in the book, you know, never a day goes by without Dinah's shadow being there in a decision that they're making. And certainly their decision with regards to the protection of Archie and Lily uh, is, is in response to, to what happened to Diana. And, the, and, and it is that they're hyper-focused on it. Um, what I find baffling is that they both had bodyguards themselves and traditionally what happens is that you know if if you've got a baby that's recently born they will always travel with them so they don't need a that um archie didn't really need a bodyguard um or protection for for a long time so it was all a bit it struck me as being a bit premature uh, and and with regards to to diana she, she remembers she was an independent humanitarian um, separate from the royal family, and we've seen the same with uh, William, uh, with Harry and and Meghan. They are now independent humanitarians on the world stage. They went to New York recently, and they were met by Bill uh, Blasio, the the mayor, and by the governor of New York State. Uh, so that you know they were celebrities in exactly the same. And it's you know there are par- parallels between the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Yeah. When they first came to America, more people came, came out to see, to watch them, to look at them uh, when they went to New York and when they went to Baltimore than, than, and when they went to Washington than um, the King and Queen when they visited in 1939. They had that golden aura, that charisma around them. 15 years later, after the umpteenth visit to Palm Beach, um, and New York, where they had a suite at the Waldorf Hotel, you know, people wouldn't even bother turning their heads. So, the, the, you know, you have your day in the sun and then the caravan moves on. And I think that Harry and Meghan are probably aware of that, that they've got a few years to do, to, to make a real impact, uh, and then the caravan will move on. I hear a lot of people describe the Sussexes as impulsive, like the Oprah interview. That was an impulsive move. They didn't think about it. But you describe Megan in your book as someone who likes to consider things carefully, to pause before she jumps in and considerate of other people's feelings. So are they impulsive? And I've found new information out since this book has come out uh, that Harry was very keen to do an interview with Oprah within six months of the wedding. And he was having meetings with Oprah in a London hotel with other uh, TV executives with regards to doing an interview. So right off the bat, right off the bat, they, they, Oprah was in their sights. There was nothing impulsive about it. Oprah had spoken to Meghan before the wedding and that elements of that conversation are contained in her interview where she says that there was somebody listening in from the press office 
and that and that and that to me was disingenuous anyway because you know Megan is enough of an old campaigner to know that if you're a TV celebrity as she was or if you're a businessman or if you're a politician you've always got to get past the gatekeeper which is usually and especially if you remember the royal royal family that you've got to get past the gatekeeper but what I understand from my Hollywood sources is that um, Harry was specifically uh, in touch with, with, with Oprah, secretly went to see her in London in December Whoa. 2018, six months. So that the plan for an Oprah interview had been going on for some time. So don't run away with the idea that it was all impulsive. It wasn't. Now, I like this part where you're talking to Christine Knudsen. She was the woman that organized Megan's camp or school retreat. She says, I remember Megan saying, why can't we do it this way? Or has anybody thought about that? She was always thinking about a better way to do something, not just complaining. I'm that way. I don't know what type of personality that is, but I'm a solutions finder. And I realized, you know, in newsrooms, you're considered a problem if you try to change something. Is that little quirk that Megan has figuring out solutions in her head, what what ticked people off in the palace that has done things a certain way for a million years? There's no, I thought there's any question of that. She's, she's, it's like, um, it's like the classic, divide between Americans and Brits. The Americans, uh, like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, it's, you know, individual uh, rule-breaking, snubbing of authority. Well, Megan's in that kind of American tradition uh, and the the British hierarchical, class-driven, rather stuffy. uh, So that caricature is there. and the reason why the palace do it in a certain way, because they've been doing it like that for years, obviously some of it can be remedied, but at the same time, it does, it, the, the reason why they do it in a certain way is because that's the way it works. And the one thing you've got to realise when you enter the royal family, it ain't a sprint. And Meghan thought it was a sprint, and it's not. It's, it's a marathon. In fact, it's, it's an ultra marathon. <laughs> and you've got to, you've got to be steady. And you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. They had some great ups and they had a lot of downs and then they, they whizzed off. And, you know, there's, there's an element in all this that Harry was looking for a way out, mm. that he, as he said himself, found himself, you know, uh, sweating and, and panicked every time he saw cameras. And... Uh, just wanted to leave the room. So that's hardly the best way to be a prince when you know that all eyes are going to be upon you. Right. And, um, you know, ironically, they've they've changed one microscope, the mass media, for a, a microscope that they've invented themselves, where they're now promoting themselves via Spotify, Netflix, and so on. Yeah. And the, it, it now... The jury is out for them. They've they've done these deals. Now that they've got to produce. Right. They've got to create that good content. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're up against some, uh, you know, the whole point about being a producer, which is what they are now, is being able to read a script and say, yeah, that's good. We'll do that. Or that's poor. Or that needs developing. And it's an art. And neither of them 
have the, have, have spent the time uh, doing that. I mean, you've got, you've got to read a lot of scripts before you before you can see that piece of gold, that nugget. Well, Megan did watch Trevor do it for a few years. Yeah, there's a, that's that's a, that's a good point. Tre- and, and but Trevor was compulsive. He was reading scripts in the shower. He was reading scripts on the plane. He was reading scripts whilst he was driving his Porsche. Yeah. Uh, he was he was at it. And and Megan was. Yeah, I, I, would, I would take your point that she would she would obviously be saying, "Why can't I be so and so in that in that?" And he wouldn't, you know, he would leave it to somebody else. Yeah. So she's got more. Obviously, she's got more experience. But uh, you know, the they can, can only get so far with the Invictus Games. Now, we talk about how she rejected the idea of marriage to level up, but then she's talking to Ashley Cole and she's getting all worked up and excited about this random personality in London. Deep down, does it feel like she was looking to date someone in London that would elevate her? Maybe the prince wasn't on her radar. I mean, because that feels like an impossible task, but it feels to me like she was looking to utilize a relationship to level up and to be more of, you know, on a global stage. Well, she was certainly looking for a relationship. I mean, I think she would be the first one to admit that she was looking for a boyfriend, looking for, uh, and uh, she'd been in correspondence with, with Ashley Cole, and she was warned by, ironically, by a tabloid reporter to keep away from him because he was... Bit of a, he had a bit of a name as a philanderer, um, and of course we have the the blind date with, with with Prince Harry. It could have been a blind date with, I don't know, an international banker. Um, <laughs> uh, she was she was looking for uh, a relationship, and so was he. And and I and in a way, I, the, the point I make in the book is that he was more of a supplicant than she was. He, because he realised how difficult it was, even if a woman liked him, his personality and so on, would they be able to stick the scrutiny, the protocol, the life of being a member of the royal family? Because it's not, you know, it's not just some a gig that you fall into. It's, it's a genuine life change. Yeah. And he'd had several girlfriends, Chelsea Davy and, uh, and others, who just didn't want to know, and and it was also the same. The same was true of his father. He, I mean, he's, Prince Charles had had, a, had asked numerous women to marry him, and yeah. also thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'm not the queen because we live in a different world where in the past you would sacrifice your life for duty on the altar of monarchy or the aristocracy. Now women want to live their one chance at life themselves. They, they, they don't want to sacrifice their lives. Fergie didn't want to do it. Diana didn't want to do it. Do we know when Meghan Markle went from Rachel to Meghan or, or when she changed her name? It's, it's a question I've never answered. I, I'd like to know that. Why, okay. why, why did she call herself Meghan and not Rachel? Yeah. Because nobody's ever called. I mean, she was called Flower, Bud, Meg. Yeah as a kid. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she, she just didn't like the name. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. Thank you very much. See Bye. you in a few weeks. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. 
Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.